As we begin this series of Christ in the Psalms, I I do promise there is rhyme and reason. Uh, Hopefully by the end of this sermon, I will convince you about why this is a good spot to start. But uh, please uh, keep Luke open. Uh, That would be helpful. And let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that we can gather together. We thank you that you are present with us uh, in your word and through your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you speak to each of us this morning, uh, that you uh, guide our eyes uh, to fix them on you, uh, that we might know you and love you more and serve you more faithfully. So we pray for these things in your son's name. Amen. Today, we remember the end of the Great War. Uh, It was called the War to End All Wars. But as we sit here a hundred years on, of course, we know that that is not true. Uh, That human nature being what it is means that there will always be people who seek to act for their good and for their glory. Uh, And we always do it. We do it personally on a smaller level. And for some people who have enough power and enough influence, uh, they do it on a global scale to devastating consequences. And I think what's particularly tragic about that phrase, the war to end all wars, is that, of course, 30 years later, a relatively short amount of time, of course, there was World War II. Some 2,000 years ago, the disciples believed that Jesus was going to be the one who was going to bring peace to humanity. That he was going to come as saviour, not just of Israel, but for all nations. But instead, with all of that expectation, he dies unceremoniously on a cross. And so for these two disciples walking down the road, they're in a moment of existential crisis. They have put all of their hope and identity in this man, Jesus, being the promised Messiah. And now it's over. But as they come to terms with this, they are literally walking beside the man who has all the answers, which is really quite a surreal picture, isn't it? You can imagine they're walking down this hard, dusty desert road, talking about the events of the last couple of days and talking about Jesus and his death and resurrection. And Jesus is literally talking with them, asking questions, and they're oblivious. They are missing it all. And it's not just that Jesus, you know, hid his appearance, you know, with what he was wearing or that he somehow looked different, you know, pre-death and and post-death. Now, the passage tells us they were were kept from recognising him. Something active was happening so that they did not see. And what was happening there was really, I suppose, representative of what was happening within their hearts and minds. They didn't see Jesus literally and physically, And they couldn't recognise what had happened in the events of the cross. To put it in the words of Isaiah 6, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. And that's where these disciples are as they journey down this road. 
But really, the events that are happening here at the end of Luke are really all about what God has promised and what God has already said would happen in his word in the past. This is just the culmination of all of God's plans from the beginning. And he has written those plans into the history of Israel. So let's have a look at this passage together, starting at verse 9. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. That's how they perceived Jesus. It wasn't a blind faith. It wasn't a superstitious faith. You know, they had listened to Jesus. They'd heard his words. They'd heard him speak with authority. And they had seen what he had done. So if you'd been there, if you'd been walking with Jesus, that would have been pretty compelling, wouldn't it? Now, we don't know what Cleopas and his mate saw. You know, they don't describe each of their particular events where they were present. But let me just pick one from the book of Luke, when Jesus heals the paralysed man. So Luke tells of the event where Jesus is, is speaking to a crowd in a house, and some men bring a paralysed man to Jesus and literally dig through the clay roof and lower him down before him. And if you had been there that day when you watched Jesus heal a man paralysed, unable to walk, to go from that, completely dependent on his mates, to standing up in front of everyone and leaving the room, I reckon you'd be pretty convinced. And when you listen to his words on that day, they were either incredibly arrogant and delusions of grandeur or the words of someone who was completely unique. So to pick up the account briefly, Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So to say your sins are forgiven is an outrageous claim. Only God can forgive sins. But when you hear those words with a man standing up, rolling up his mat and going home, that's a pretty convincing picture. And of course, this isn't the only account, is it? As we read the Gospel of Luke or Matthew or Mark or John, there's just account after account of Jesus doing the impossible of Jesus healing the sick and the lame, Jesus calming the storms and and controlling the weather, Jesus having control and power over evil spirits, and ultimately Jesus having power over death. And so the disciples recognise rightly that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. He's more than just an advocate for the poor and the sick and the lame and the blind. Here is a man who is sent by God, who is fulfilling God's promise in the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. So a week earlier, as they're coming into Jerusalem, they're singing and dancing, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So when the disciples say, we had hoped... It wasn't we had hoped as in, you know, wishful thinking, perhaps, maybe. 
It was, no, no, we are confident that this is true. We have heard Jesus, we have seen what he can do, and we know that he is the Messiah. And of course now, it's all over. All that confidence, all of that certainty is gone. And Jesus is killed like so many other messiahs before him on a cross. Yeah, most of the messiahs came as revolutionaries with swords. Jesus came with a message of love and forgiveness. But the end's the same. He dies. And so these guys are walking down the road, talking about these events, asking that inevitable question, what now? They put all of their hope in this man, Jesus. And even the events of that first Sunday morning, with the women going to the tomb, even that hadn't convinced them that anything had really changed. So from verse 22, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So whatever they saw that morning, whatever the women experienced, these two disciples weren't convinced. They were still walking down that road downcast. Jesus is still going to say to them in a moment, how foolish you are. So whatever their expectation, it wasn't for a risen Lord, not in any physical sense. You know, perhaps in a, in a you know, risen with God the Father in heaven sense, certainly that's what Mary expected for her brother Lazarus when he died. She said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Perhaps that was their expectation, but certainly not in the present. And so here they are left in this hopeless situation. But in the midst of this, you know, as they're talking about these events, as they feel the weight of their despair, Jesus then talks to them and opens their eyes. But interestingly, he doesn't do it physically, doesn't he? He, he doesn't go, see, it, it's me. You know, he doesn't do what he did with, say, John, where he goes, you know, look at you know, the holes in my hand. Look at my side. He doesn't do that. He chooses to show them from the scriptures. Verse 25 said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And just so we're in absolutely no doubt that the Psalms are part of the scriptures, a few verses later when he goes back to Jerusalem and sees the rest of his disciples, Jesus says again, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So you imagine that day. That's a, this is a pretty good lesson, isn't it? You're walking along with Jesus. Okay, this is the ultimate scripture. I mean, you know, I hope this sermon's helpful and all. But 
Yeah, imagine walking with Jesus as he opens up the scriptures. And we don't know exactly what he said in those hours. That would have been very considerate if Luke had sat down and written a bit more detail. Uh, But let's just take the briefest of briefest journeys through the Old Testament and see some of the things that he could have said. So, for example, Genesis 3.15, which looks at the one who will crush Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Or God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. Or Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. As you think about the events of the cross, and as you listen to those words 700 years earlier, it's a powerful picture, isn't it? Or perhaps Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Or again, looking forward to what Jesus is about to do as he goes to the Father, Psalm 110, which we will look at a lot more later. But the Lord said to him, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies a footstool for your feet. So all of these passages, just to pick a, a snapshot of the Old Testament, all of them pointing to a Messiah. And Jesus standing there, being the one that fulfills it all. His life, his power, his authority all testify to who he is and ultimately his death and resurrection on the cross. Because in his death, he saves us from the consequence of our sin. And in him rising again from the dead, he defeats the consequences of our sin, which is death. And so we have a certain hope and a certain future, not because of what has just happened in the past, but also because what Jesus has done since, as he goes to sit with the Father. So for these two disciples, their day started downcast, overwhelmed, despairing. And now as they walk along, as Jesus has explained the scriptures to them, they finally are starting to see it. And then at the end of the day, they sit down together, they have a meal, and as Jesus breaks the bread, and as he prays over it, their eyes are literally opened. So they literally see that the person who they've been talking to all day on that dusty road is Jesus himself. And so what was, you know, inconceivable in the morning is now reasonable because they understand who they are looking at, not just because of who he is physically, 
but because of what God has been doing all the way through history. You know those situations where you're struggling to understand something? It doesn't matter how many times you look at it or how many angles you look at it. It just isn't coming together. For some people, that's called maths. And then finally, you know, you you get it. You, You finally see it for what it is. And in fact, you see it and it becomes so clear that you go, how did I not see this earlier? Well, that's kind of what what happens in this moment for these disciples. As they sit with Jesus, it all becomes clear. And they're so excited about what they have seen and what they have realised that they get up in the evening and then run back to Jerusalem, some seven-odd miles, uh, which is no small feat. I mean, seven-odd you know, miles is a distance, but it's also in the night. So there's genuine physical danger in making this trip. But, you know, the news they have is so overwhelmingly good that they just can't wait. And so that they get back to the disciples and as they're blurting out what's happened, the disciples are blurting out to them, you know, Jesus really is risen. And of course, they're realising at this point that the women really were right. Take from that what you will. <laughs> but yeah, what a monumental moment. You know, to go from complete despair to just uncontainable excitement. All that hope that had been crushed is now restored and more. I think we often think about, yeah, we'd have a more confident faith, or we'd be more confident in our faith, if we experienced more miraculous things in our life, if God worked more dramatically. And God certainly can demonstrate his glory in the miraculous. But in this passage, and more often than not in our life, God chooses to speak through his word. And that's what he's done in this passage. He's opened their eyes and convinced them through his word. And we see that pattern continue for the early Christians. So for Paul, for example, in Thessalonica, in Acts 17, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And so as God reveals himself through his word, he chooses to make his word powerful. In the words of Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to divine soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, it's a great image, isn't it? It's a powerful image. You know, there's a reason why we encourage us as a, as a community of Christians to spend time in God's word. You know, there's a reason why we commit so much of our time together each week, spending time in God's word. It's why we have connect groups. It's why we encourage each other to spend time during our personal time in, in the day, just to have a quiet moment of reading and reflection and prayer. Because God's word is powerful. I think the difficulty is we sometimes see it as an obligation. This is what I need to do, I should do this, or this somehow gives me credit before God, rather than a pleasure. Isn't it wonderful that God chooses to speak? 
uh, and not just speak in terms of the words, but convict that his spirit will take what we are reading and our humble comprehension and actually cut us to the bone. Uh, And for anyone who's a Christian here, you've experienced that, haven't you? You, There are some passages you've read a hundred times and you go, yeah, that's a good passage. And then you read it one more time and in this particular moment, in this particular circumstance, God uses that to speak to you in a completely different way. That's what God's word does. It is living and active. And as we read it, we give God honour because we seek his counsel and his wisdom. But if the word of God is living and active and sharp, then we want to be careful about how we wield it, don't we? Yeah, anyone who's got a pen knife or an axe or a chainsaw knows that you, you want to wield it with care because if you wield it poorly, well, bad things can happen, apparently. So as we begin this series in the Psalms, we're not trying to rewrite history and invent ways to sort of take Jesus and plonk him back in the Old Testament. This is not an attempt at revisionism. What we are looking at is what God had to say to Israel and how right back then, in the original context, God was speaking not just to them then, but to the Messiah who was going to come. So in that sense, the Psalms are a little bit like one of those 3D magic eye pictures. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. Uh, They kind of work on layers, don't they? So uh, on a sort of a basic level, you have a cacophony of of colour that resembles something called art. Um, Some of you might want to dispute that. (laughs) Uh, But you know with these pictures, if you've ever seen one, if you change your focal point... Uh, and you look sort of deeper into the picture. If I leave it up too long, you'll get a headache, and that'll be the end of you. Uh, but if you look a bit deeper uh, into the picture, you, you see that there's, there's actually an image in, in an image. Uh, for those who are truly masochistic, I'll, I'll leave it up uh, after church, and uh, you won't be good for much conversation. Uh, but it's a little bit like that with the Psalms. So that they have layers. They work on multiple levels. And so as we engage with the Psalms, we need to work and see them uh, in their different layers. Because if we make it all about us, then actually we miss half of what they have to say. So absolutely, in the, in the Psalms we find inspiration and empathy. You know, they reflect our joys and struggles of life. They give words to our praise, but also to our despair. So we love the Psalms, but if we make the Psalms just about us, if we read them as if God is only speaking to me, then we are missing a lot of the picture. And what we are missing most significantly is God's plan for his Messiah and God's plan for our future. So if I can convince you of one thing as we start this series... It's that we read the Psalms in all their breadth and depth as we journey through them together. And my prayer for this series is really uh, the words of the disciples as they were walking along the road. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's our prayer for this series. As we read 
God's word as we read his psalms that we will see his Messiah and his plan for Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you have had one plan throughout all of history to gather people together from every tribe and nation and that you are going to do that through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we uh, look at the scriptures over the next uh, uh, weeks ahead, as we look at your psalms, Lord, I pray that you will speak uh, to each of us and that we will understand ourselves more clearly in the big picture of your plan. And so we pray for these things in your son's name. Amen.